Good evening, everybody. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the John F. Kennedy Jr. Forum. My name is Trey Grayson. We want to welcome you to the first forum of the 2013 calendar year. Uh, we're really excited to see so many people in the audience, especially considering a lot of our students are around the world, uh, resting, relaxing, saving the world uh, before coming back uh, to start classes at the end of the month. Tonight's forum uh, has several co-sponsors I want to thank. Uh, the, the Women in Public Policy Program, the Center for Public Leadership, and the Carr Center for Human Rights, all three co-sponsors. So thank you to them for their co-sponsorship. If you're on Twitter, it's okay to tweet during the forum. Uh, waging Peace is the hashtag, Waging Peace, which is uh, part of the title. And so tonight's forum, The Tipping Point, uh, is going to be moderated by former U.S. Ambassador to Austria, Swanee Hunt. Swanee is the Eleanor Roosevelt lecturer here at the Harvey Kennedy School and was the founding director of the Women in Public Policy Program. So please join me in welcoming Ambassador Hunt. Thank you. Thank you. My name is Julia, I'm from Liberia. And let me tell you the importance of peace and security and why women should be involved. I have a story and I need your attention. The story is about this young lady at the age of 18, the crisis began in Liberia. At the end of it, she found herself with three children that were very unwanted for her. She found nowhere else to go but to her brother, who was then working with government, had a nice house, had a nice car, and he had almost everything that she thought she needed to care for her and her children. So she moved in with him, only to find out that he started to molest her three daughters. And she thought that was the end of the world, that she had no way out. But one day, she met someone who spoke to her, and she told her story. And he then said to her, there's hope. Let me take you somewhere. And he asked her, are you in school? And she said, no. And so he said, I'll show you go to school. And he asked her, what do you want to do? She said, the war is over in my country. I want peace. He said, but what does peace mean to you? And she said to him, for me, peace is putting that food on the table for my three daughters. For me, peace is about making sure that they go to school and come home safe. Peace is about providing good education. For me, peace is about justice, access to justice for what was done to me. And he said, you will go to school. Today, that woman was so determined. She went to school. She's in parliament in Liberia. And her main focus is on peace and security in the eyes of women. Today, this year, 2013, it's 10 years of unbroken peace in Liberia. Why is that? Because the women of Liberia decided that the war would end. They had so many peace accords, so many peace agreements were signed because women were not at the table. When the women of Liberia got to the table and signed that lasting peace accord, today we have, for the second time, 
a female president elected democratically. Today, we as Liberians can gladly say that we have 10 years of unbroken peace because women were involved, women were at the table. I say this to say, we are all here today representing our various countries because of the importance we put on peace and security. We are very thankful to uh, the institution for inviting us to tell our individually and collectively, no matter where you're from, the issue of women is the same, we've realized. So we've come to say to all of you policymakers, all of you who have some form of decision to make, that the issue of women should not be a side event. Let it be a main event. The resolution, UN Resolution 1325, should move from the desk to implementation. So we are glad to be here, and we want to say thank you for listening. Wow. The minister and I met uh, when you were superintendent, a governor in Gran Bassa, and you took us in a helicopter and we dropped down in the middle of, sorry, but it felt like the middle of nowhere. And we were looking at schools and what women were doing there and, and, and they, were, they were doing this chanting, no, no longer men in front and the women in the back together, we are marching side by side, side by side. And remember that woman who said to me, speaking of a graduate of this institution, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, the first elected woman in Africa, this woman said to me, there's a woman in our White House and if she can be in that White House, we have a voice in our house. It was a great moment. Made me really appreciate the importance of role models like you. So thank you again for coming a very long way to be with us. I, yes. I know you have bios. You do have bios here, right? seeing some heads nodding, so I'm encouraged. Uh, but let me just remind you that here on my left is Sabrina Saget, and at 25, she became the youngest member elected to the Afghan parliament. She is extraordinarily articulate. She served in that parliament for five years, led calls for legislative reforms, started the Institute for Rethinking Policies, as well as the Research Institute for Women, Peace, and Security. She is insightful, and she knows whereof she speaks. I think when I, when I listen to you, uh, my, my apprehensions about Afghanistan they, they, they are met with hope. So thank you so much for coming. Uh, next to her is Wafa Burgegas, who founded the, and chairs the nonprofit, the Committee to Support Women's Participation in Decision-Making. And she was very involved in the success of the first Libyan national elections. I hope 
that you will tell us more about that experience because from here we saw Libyan women involved and we kept thinking, you know, is, which way is this going to go? You know, is it going to go the way of as Egypt has gone with women pushed aside and such a, such, what shall I say? I don't want to say yet disastrous, but it, it very, very dangerous um, development there. So, I, you know, to have you here, not just talking about it, but talking out of that experience is, is very valuable to every single person here. That's, that's why they came. They're people up at the very top. Um, then next is Raja Altali, who is the co-founder of the Center for Civil Society and Democracy in Syria. She is currently involved with two broad projects, one designing plans for transitional justice, other electoral reform for a post-Assad Syria. You know, it's so interesting. When we think about conflicts, uh, it's, it's easy to think in our heads, well, everyone's got to focus on stopping the conflict, stopping the conflict, and then it happens at some point, and the question becomes, are the plans in place for what happens the day after, the week after, the month after, the, the year after? And it's in that, that vacuum, that power vacuum, that often the people who rush in are, are what shall I say, they're almost predators. Uh, and the, the people who've been so involved in thinking through what they want for their country, they, they're still thinking it through, but they haven't forced themselves into those positions. So thank you for thinking ahead as you have. And then we have Janan Lata, who is from Myanmar, and she helped initiate the Ethnic Civil Society Leaders Forum. Her expertise is on women and negotiations and the gender dynamics there, but basically how do you ensure that women get, it, get to that negotiating table? And she has done a tremendous amount of work on the, the various ethnic tensions or actual conflicts in Myanmar. I knew so little about this. I, I am grateful to my class, my students who are here, uh, tonight for teaching me so much about this conflict. But you know, I, I don't know, I think, Shannon, it was because I felt like I, we couldn't go in. You know, I wasn't, be go I wasn't going to be in there, you know, meeting with women and working with policymakers, and so I just didn't have you on my list of, of countries to understand. And I apologize for that, but I'm awfully glad you're here now. And, and I, I can't imagine how many stories you would have to tell us that would be so fresh, so new, because we're just now getting a window into your country. I mean, of course we think of Aung San Suu Kyi, and she was here, and I was sitting, sitting right there on the third row. It really was the great thrills for me to have her here recently at the forum. But, but we want to hear from you now, representing so much more. And my good friend, Sophie Ospina from Colombia. Oh, I don't know how many of you know Colombian women. Oh my gosh. I mean, y'all are amazing. 
you're just amazing. And we've been working with women from Columbia through Women Waging Peace, which was launched here through the Women in Public Policy program. It was incubated here at Harvard. And now it grew into this Institute for Inclusive Security, which is headquartered in, um, in Washington. I still keep, teach the course Inclusive Security here. And women from these conflict zones around the world come here and lecture here at Harvard. But oh, those of you who haven't experienced Colombian women, you know, put it on your list. You know, it's, it's one of, it, it should be on, on one, in one of your buckets of things you've got to do in your lifetime. So tell us, and also be sure and tell us why you're wearing green by the time we get to the end of your comments. If it's all right with you all, we're going to have a conversation here. Uh, I, we're not going to do a structured and now you give a speech and you give a speech, et cetera, because that's not who we are, actually. So we're going to have a conversation, and then we'll open it up to questions from you, and, and uh, the minister from Liberia will come back up during that part. All right? So uh, anyone who would like? Just I'll go from here. Okay. Julia, I can relate so much to what you have said, but so often women's participation in decision-making and on the table is easy, especially in societies where overly conservative uh, type and uh, where they are rooted in sometimes outdated traditions. Libya, my country, is one of them, but women are challenging barriers. Women are going forth. Women are continuing their commitment to bring about the change. And no place probably where women has proven to be more strong than in my country and I'll tell you this I'll tell you the story of Libyan women and they surprised we surprised ourselves by how strong we are it was when the Arab Spring Revolution had started and the revolution started in Tunisia first and we were watching with our hands on our hearts because we've been looking for the change forever and ever and it never came and we thought it will never come. In Libya we are living in an impoverished country with, with institutions, governmental institutions falling, with poorest quality of education, with the poorest quality of health in a country that we all know how rich it is. The leader, Gaddafi, invested in every country except in his country. He invested in Africa, he invested in Europe, but not in Libya. It was so hard living under these conditions, but yet again with his bloody grip on us and silencing us in fear, we never thought a change would happen. So anyways, when the revolution happened and started in Tunisia, we were like, wow, will that ever happen here? But we didn't think so until one day. And then it, it started in Egypt. And we were watching minute by minute. I mean, we were so stressed out watching because we were part of it. We felt it until the Facebook started announcing that we will have an uprise on the 17th of February. We were like, that will never happen. We were debating, doubting, and we said, no way, nobody will dare to go out 
We know Gaddafi, as he said himself, is not Zain al-Abidin, and he's not Iraq. He's an, a mad tyrant, and he takes a, a, a passion in torturing his enemies and uh, torturing them in a way that probably never happened in modern history. Anyways, it was the tension was so high in the air, and we were debating and chatting with fake names on the Facebook. Who's going to go out? Nobody will go. Do you think anybody will go? And it was the evening of the 15th of February when we suddenly heard chants of women in Benghazi, my town. We heard chants going louder and louder. Rise up, Benghazi. Rise up, Benghazi. The day you've been waiting for had come. It was women who started the revolution in Libya. It was women who started the change. And this can tell you how strong women are and how determined they can be to bring about change. And the courage they have is immense. The revolution started from there. And the momentum of Libyan women is still continuing till day. I will probably go on and on and on but I will have, I will let a chance to someone else to say, and then maybe later on I can tell you the rest of the story. But, so but maybe. Before you do that, you said the 17th was when Facebook said, yeah. but this was on the 15th? Yeah, and to tell you the truth, if it wasn't for that, probably our revolution would have never had succeeded because we took them by surprise. We took Gaddafi by surprise. He was getting ready to confront us on the 17th, he was getting his troops coming in and everything, and they were really getting... But we took them by surprise. Wasn't that something? I mean, it was... I mean, usually when I say it, it's more dramatic and sad than this because we had to pay a high price for our revolution. But we go back and say, if it was not for the 15th, if it wasn't for those women, the revolution would have never had happened, and it would have never had succeeded. And we really, I mean, I'll go back to you, that tons and tons of people that start joining in, that start joining the women, the feeling that everybody in the country had the same feeling, but we were silenced and we never thought that we are all sharing the same feeling. We were so oppressed, so quiet. Public life was silenced completely. But then the streets were filled with people and they started marching down. And it was like, the second or third day when his forces finally were ready to confront and the bloody confrontation started from there on. So that's... So, so when you heard this chanting, where were you? I was at home and this place was near my house. It's, it's called the, it's the security main building in Benghazi and that's where they gathered a group of women and actually they had lost their sons a couple of years ago in the famous Abu Slim jail in a bloody massacre where Gaddafi killed 1,200 young people for just complaining about bad jail conditions. He executed them in a couple of hours. These were their mothers. They were the mothers of martyrs. And they came and they gathered and they were determined to make a change in the country, to make justice happen. So. That was the, it was like less than five minutes walk from my house where this started and it went on from there for a long journey till 
it was, this was on the 15th, by the time we finished, it was October 22nd of the same year, like eight months, and right. we will get to talk about... We have the same madness, so <laughs> at least you are done, so... I'm not sure if you... Yeah, I, you know, I come from Myanmar, and we go through the same kind of military op oppression, you know, for the last 60 years. So tonight I want to uh, share with you probably one aspect of play that you may not hear much, or you may hear about it, but maybe not deeply. So um, this is our country, probably is one of the countries in the world that experienced the longest civil war. Because we had gone through over 60 years of civil war till today. Today we had the you know, semi-democratic government, but we're still going through this war for 60 years, over 60 years. So I come from one of the ethnic minority group up north, border to China, because our country is in between India and China. So I come from northern part, which is called Gachin. And why like ethnic armed group are still fighting today? This is a question. You know, series of military government. So today we have 19 ethnic armed group still trying to find solution, political solution with the current government, democratic, semi-democratic government. Why? The ethnic minority groups have been suffer because the government is composed of majority Bama ethnic and majority Buddhists. And ethnic children suffer. I can still remember my children one of my boys, you know, as he started school, public school, we spoke Gachin, mother tongue is our Gachin language at home. So when he entered school, he struggled. He cried before he go to school because he didn't understand the language. So he understood a few, language, a few words in Burmese language. And one day the teacher said, to take a nap by put your head down on the table. So he understood table and he understood sleep. Then what he did was he started crawling under the table. So what happened in the class? He was humiliated, you know, he was laughed at by other children. So this kind of stories go on and on. Language, we were not able to speak our own language in the school. And ethnic minority children or youth who are graduate do not get same job opportunity in the government. If you are from ethnic, if you are Christians, you know, you will never get promoted up to major rank in the military. So these are some of the causes that ethnic armed group are still fighting today to find the solution. So I'm here today to uh, work at the peace organization focusing peace building and to bring about peace into the ethnic region and also to the whole country as a woman, which was not easy, which is not easy uh, because we are dealing with the military leaders and we are dealing with the former military leader today at the peace table. So uh, this is the challenge as a woman that I, that I face in the current situation. Yeah. Yeah. 
Maybe uh, I want to add something very similar in Syria. We have many ethnicity. Uh, so um, before like jumping into my story, we have like the Kurdish minority in Syria around like between 10 to 15 percent, and actually no one knows exactly the statistic, but like they are not allowed to use their language at all. Even many of them, they don't have citizenship. So this is like big problem. But I want to mention actually, since I believe women are power, like uh, there were a group of women Kurdish uh, in Syria who like have like a uh, hunger strike for I think four days because like Syrian opposition are very fragmented and also the Kurdish opposition are very fragmented so uh, because they want everyone to be together so they had this hunger strike and to and they forced them actually to be together and this is kind of story that it were like shown up in the media or like and usually those women are not really in the decision making I, I just want uh, to add this actually right right it's interesting how, how women often use ways of protests or influence that, that aren't even known. Like the whole business, uh, several cultures, I've heard about women taking off their scarves. And it, is, that, is that in some of your traditions also? That is, it, is it a taboo for a man to step across the scarf? Or, or what is the meaning of that? Well, um, yes, it is in Afghanistan. That if there is a place that women are in it, when its fight is going on, um, if a woman step in and ask them to stop it, they will do so, to, due to the respect to the women. Or it happens many times that we have seen that women will take out their scars, especially um, older women, which are more respected. Um, sometimes they put their white big scarf or veil on the ground, sit at it, till the fight stops or the war stops between the two tribes. Or we have seen that if there are two tribes, ethnic groups fighting to each other, <clears throat> one family, which was guilty probably, will take um, a group of people, among them their wives or some women, to the other family's house. So only taking women with them will safeguard them first, and then this is a guarantee that the, the fight or the enmity between the two families will stop. Um, let me <coughs> say also this, that most of the audience might know Afghanistan, especially Afghan women, by wearing burqa, uh, covering their faces. But no one heard of, or probably you less heard about the Afghan parliament, which has 25% of the seats now at the leadership of the country, making decisions. Um, working on new laws to guarantee the future of Afghanistan. Or many of you here in Afghanistan because of the war, the terrorism, uh, the violence, the corruption, drugs, but not much about the female boxing team of Afghanistan, <laughs> <coughs> the female football team of Afghanistan, or um, having women at the civil society pushing to enter um, the peace dialogues, for example. So these women, or the citizens of the country, are not anymore those who were during Taliban or before. 
So life has changed in Afghanistan. What you hear mostly in the news is war. We have life going on in Afghanistan. We have signs of peace in Afghanistan. Peace in itself is progress. And, um, but we are women, we want more. Uh, we want better life, not only for ourselves, not only for the rest of the world, but also for our children. Um, so really, on the ground, there are many beautiful signs of life that we can pick because we have tasted it now. We had the chance to taste the apple juice, as I give the example sometime. Uh, we have a de baby democracy now that someone needs to hold its hand and walk with it to learn how to walk independently. This will take time. We may fall once, twice, three times, even ten times, but there will be a, a time that we will learn how to walk independently and alone. So that day is not very, very far from it from us, um, but it is difficult. There are many concerns, there are many challenges, not only in front of women, but the whole generation, the whole uh, people and nation. Um, but we have you guys uh, who are standing by our side, and because we believe that this world is so small, we never can live in our own bubbles, and we should learn how to coexist and be beside each other when we need each other. Um, so. The, what I do now currently back home is that to make sure that not only we have women at the peace negotiations, uh, not only at the national level, but also at the grassroots and local level, uh, but to change this um, presentation or presence into a meaningful presence, into a meaningful participation, which can really change the life of the nation. And we believe that if women were not part of war, they can be part of peace. They, women can be good ambassadors uh, for peace, not for themselves, but the whole world. Um, I have a lot to say, but I'll stop here. <laughs> I wanted to interrupt you. You said something that always like women, or the people in the parliament always talk a lot. So <laughs> I think <Did> maybe. I? <laughs> so the, Sometimes you, I forget that I'm not a member of parliament anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so you said actually something very interesting, that the media, like, big on like or talk all the time about the war they forget about like a humanitarian story or that there's life is going on in um, Afghanistan and you can tell maybe hundred more time about that on in Syria so there's life stories in Syria the life is going on even though the war is going on as well so maybe I will start with my own story or with a story of a child who, had, who was like 12 years old, sitting in his house, in her house, in Sidnaya, in Damascus suburb, like at 7 p.m., March 2nd, 1992. The door was knocked, and she didn't know who was knocking, but she saw her sister and her brother broking all the, door, uh, the drawers and burning all the files of her father. Everything. Everything was burned maybe in half an hour. No one told her that her father was arrested. I knew that later on he was kidnapped, but I knew when they were burning all the files, something happened to my father. Four months later, 
we knew that he was alive. It took us four months to know that he is in the security forces building, in the political security forces building. When we knew that there was like a good doctor who called my uncle to say that my father is in the hospital treating his leg because it was broken because he stayed in the bathroom for more than one minute. They broke his leg and they tortured him on his leg for one week before taking him to the hospital. We didn't see him until February 1993. It was, it was very, very hard. It's, it's hard for a woman to live in Syria. We have like conservative society in general, but it's harder when your father is not around. Yeah, since my sister is here, I will tell a very small story about her. Like, she was in the fourth grade, and in Syria, it's everything about like the president. So it was Hafez al-Assad was there at that time. And they said, you need in the festival to sing for him. And she said, I'm not going to sing for the one who is imprisoning my father. My father was still in prison. And then they, they didn't let her to go to any like camps after that. They didn't let her like go, like she, she was very good like in speech, in giving speech. She was like 10 years old. And she was like prohibited to do any of this stuff. So I think as a child, she was like very courage and I'm very proud of her. <coughs> So I decided at that time I will never involved in politics. I don't keep up my promises. And <laughs> in March, not usually, not usually, but this time in March 2011, when I've heard that the children of Daraha was arrested, and I know what does it mean to be arrested in Syria. I know from my father, not personally, but I couldn't help it. I involved in documenting a human right via Skype, and I was very involved with connecting with activists since my other sister who was on the ground, she was like very involved, and I was like trying to help communicating with people and putting people together. Great, great, and yeah, yeah Sophie, Sophie, what's going on? Very, very moving stories and really, really quite, quite difficult, in fact, to face. But we know, in fact, that we as women, we have a lot of strength, that we have the, the tools, in fact, to mobilizing our people, our families, to fight and to face, in fact, what we call infortune, no? the lack of fortune of the lack of a good, good life. As you may know, because we are in the U.S., and most of you know about Colombia, and I hope you know quite well the history of Colombia. We have been in a conflict for 60 years. Uh, the conflict uh, has shaped my life in different events, in fact, of, uh, of my life story and the life of my, my family since many generations, in fact. To start with, my mother, 
and my father met in a very conservative village that was in the, at the time of what we call La Violencia in Colombia, the violence period. That was 60 years ago. Um, my father was a liberal free thinker and he met there my, uh, my, my mother, who was from a very conservative family, quite, quite wealthy in fact, they married. And uh, at that time of La Violencia, in fact, the conservative party and the liberal party were fighting each other, were committing lots of atrocities, in fact, just because of they were under different political divide. And the fact that my father and my mother married in that village that is very near to Cali, at that time it was like two hours, now it's just 20 minutes. Uh, so they were sidelined for the family, from the family, they were discriminated against, and that have a lot of consequences for us, in fact. Another uh, snapshot, just to put you, in fact, in terms of the conflict was when I was studying, I studied anthropology, and I moved cities, and I went to study uh, nearby Cali, uh, where there are a lot of indigenous people. These indigenous people at that moment, I am talking about more or less 30 years ago, 25 years ago, they were fighting for their rights, and they were trying to get their lands, uh, their ancestral lands, away from the land owners who were coming from the colonial descent. And it was a very strong indigenous people movement, in fact, who were fighting at that time for these rights and start fighting right now. And this is one of the areas where the conflict in Colombia is still really very targeting civilians and targeting indigenous people. So within that context, as a woman, in fact, I decided that we have to promote peace, to mobilize civil society, in fact, to put an end of 60 years of conflict. So today I am wearing this dress. This is a green dress. I am a leader of the Green Party in Colombia. I am what we call this label as an eco-feminist. So, <laughs> so we have many, many laws in Colombia. We have a magnificent legal framework with all the UN Convention, CEDAW, 1325, uh, gender quotas, everything that you want is the most wonderful constitution, equal rights, indigenous people rights, rights for the Afro. But when you look down at the ground, you see in fact that there is a huge gap on implementation. So I just embraced the Green Party because we wanted to make a political change two years ago. ago. We wanted to get rid of Alvaro Uribe, who has been a very uh, right-wing person and who was really exacerbating uh, society because even within the family, me and my sister who were supporting Alvaro Uribe, they were accusing me of uh, being supporting guerrillas fighters, and that was not the case. It was that just the, the, the society was so polarized, in fact, that you couldn't have like a sort of uh, critical view of what was going on, because if you were against of all, all the militarization of society, you were really, you know, in the other hand, and that happened also for, for human rights defenders. Anyway, we wanted to make a change and get rid of Alvaro Uribe, so we started, we created the Green Party, and uh, I stand for elections. I wanted to have, and all my political campaign was women's participation in politics, 
women's participation in peace building, women fighting against violence against women and against the atrocities that are committed against women in conflict, and also uh, to protect all our natural resources, because our natural resources as well are some of the triggers of violence. So that dress was uh, the dress of my political campaign. I wear this dress <laughs> the day that were elections, and, and so I wanted to, to wear it tonight. That's <laughs> great. Let, let me take you back to Libyan women and what happened after that. After the big role that women played in the revolution, and when the government formed and the transitional council formed, women were completely sidelined as if they did not participate in that revolution whatsoever. We were amazed that the transitional council, among 98 members, there was only one woman for a long time, and then like after four or five months, they added another woman. The government formed with a one woman. At that point, we realized that we cannot take it anymore after the resolve, the patriotism, and the potential Libyan women had shown. We have decided uh, that we form organizations, and at that point, the, not the whole country was liberated. It was only the eastern part that was liberated, and we were waiting for the news for the rest of the country to be liberated, but at the same time, we were working hard to uh, stabilize and build this part so that when the rest of the country is completely liberated, at least one part will be uh, settled and stabled and they can lean on. So that was the time we, a group of activist women, we came together and we formed the, the organization that I, I was elected to chair last February. This organization is called the Committee to Support Women Participate in Decision Making. And the, the, whole, uh, the whole goal is to develop legal, social rights for women to participate in decision making on all levels. We believe that mere presentation for women, elections, voting, what have you, is just uh, 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 the skim of the women's participation decision-making, but the real decision-making is by her sitting at the table, participating in the decision-making, making the policy, saying her word, sharing her views, and from there on our work has started uh, on the role. We, we had to work for the national entitlements, uh, and that was after the liberation of the whole country. We had the first, first we had the local council elections in Benghazi, and those were special because they were the first ever election <coughs> experience we have in the country since the 60s, during the monarchy time. It was the first time for so many people to go put their finger in the ink, even though neighboring countries did not have real democracy, but that they did have that fake experience of, you know, vote this. But for the Libyan, the whole thing was so <coughs> new to the point that to many people the idea of voting wasn't clear. The election law was especially complicated. So many people were reluctant. 
And that's why it was our duty, and we took it as the first job we did, is to uh, galvanize people to participate. It was important because this is democratic transformation, and it was the first step we can take towards women's participation. We called our campaign why women should be participating in decision making. And the work continued, the momentum of women continued. We won 33 seats in the National Congress. It was a big victory for women. In Benghazi, the person with the majority of the voices was a woman in Benghazi city. But that's not to say that the challenges are not there. The challenges are there because in the government, they only appointed two women, and that's where the decisions are taken and made. So uh, it's uh, from there, the, 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 the challenge is clear, the challenge to democracy itself, because without women, without 50%, more than 50% of the society participating in decision-making, there is not democracy. Another challenge, and a big challenge to us, is security and peace. And that has became a burden to rebuilding our nation. Every time we decide on doing something, something happens and it takes us back. And in Benghazi, for instance, where the trouble has been happening lately, as you all know, we the youth, the women are all determined to have the city, the economical capital of the country versus the political capital, which is Tripoli. And we make plans, we made conferences, we, invest, we invited investors, the Libyan businessmen, and then something happens, chaotic. And everybody runs away from the city and it takes us back. Many sad events has happened, many sad accidents. But you, you know who advocates for peace more than anybody else? Who advocates for security? It's again women. They galvanize the city. They call for protests. They're behind all the conferences that happened. We had the first conference for writing a national security plan for Benghazi. Trust me, women were behind it. This is what women are doing in Libya. I think. I think peace will succeed in Libya because women are behind it. Women are determined to build the nation. Women are determined for the kids to have good education and good health. We are determined to have good infrastructure. And we are going to work hard to have those women sitting on the tables of decision making, of policy making. We're going to have women in security and in peace building. So, I give it to you from there, Syria. <laughs> yeah, so it's much harder for Syria. Like, I know we are talking about women and security, so we don't have security now. I was in Syria 10 days ago uh, to Kurds Mountain in Latakia province, and people are, including women, are terrorized from something called plane and bermil, which is like cylinder tank, which they the government is putting like TNT in it and just like throw it on people and it's destroying houses and destroying lives of everyone. And women are the one who is determined to keep the lives going. There was a school in Ara village and women 
are the majority who was participating to volunteer to educate children at night because in the morning during the day they cannot really move much even though the electricity is kept since nine months still women were determined to go to school at night to work with the children in schooling it was bombed the school and when we went it was off but it was just like three or four like days before we we get into Syria so I want to pick up on one more thing like uh, as uh, Swani said that I am a co-founder of Center for Civil Society and Democracy in Syria and we are working in a project it's called Women for the Future of Syria and we do some like training for women and one of our participant she is from Idlib and Maria Qaddour I think she rem she remember her her name is May and she she was one of our uh, people we interviewed online before me going to Turkey she has very strong personality and she is truly a leader she has only ninth grade she wasn't a she was forced to get married she wasn't able to continue her study but when they did the election for Idlib province she was the only woman who was elected and then she said I'm not going to be the only woman she forced everyone to have seven women out of 77 I know it's still a small percentage but she forced everyone to nominate six more women and I think this is a big victory and those women are the one who will build peace and bring security to Syria. Yeah. One more, Jalan. And yes, and then and then all, and then we're going to open it up. Yeah. Okay. I, I I, and me. Yes. Out. Okay. And yeah. then Sophie. <laughs> all right. And then Sophie. <laughs> can I can yeah, I share sure, you? Because sure. I'm so much encouraged by Libyan friends and Syri Syrian friends that how women are strong, you know, in their, in their country. I just want to uh, just reflect our country situation. Women are still just coming out of shell, you know. So in our case, we are still working on it. But we do have strong women like, you know, Nobel Peace Laureate winner, you know, Aung San Suu Kyi. And we have women policy champions sitting with us here. And also in the civil society, women like me and other colleagues. So we are started to work Re, uh, respond to the current conflict situation. Um, so I, I want to highlight uh, the current conflict going on that up in North, Kachin State. After 17 years of ceasefire being broken, the conflict reoccurred. Regardless of new president order to stop the fighting in uh, December 2011, fighting continues. I would say in eyewitness, you know, as I grew up, this, the fighting, the intensifying fighting up north in Gachin State today is probably the most intense civil war that I ever heard and seen in the country. Because today, the semi-democratic government, you know, President Deng Xing announced peace call, that at the same time, military are having intense military operation to the Gachin up north by using helicopter gunship, by using 
uh, fighter jet to fight against the armed groups. Of course, who's being affected? Civilians. So we have hundreds of thousands of civilians being dis displaced. So in this situation, I had, as a woman, I couldn't look at this, and so I have to go and talk to the government lead negotiator. So I was in a meeting with five other men in the room as a woman. So as coming out from the military rules, as civilian, I or many people have never had a good experience with military leaders. So it was hard for me to go and talk to the lead leader, present lead negotiator. You know, he's former military general, and he's one of the ministers at the president's office. So it was hard for me to address what people think of the current peace process that president is initiating. So I told him, I also don't know how to address him, you know, so I said, minister. And so, minister, you know, this is what people think in Kachin State. President Teng Seng said in his interview, six months after he became president, that it will take two weeks to crack down Kachin up north. But at the same time, he's calling for peace. And in December 2011, he order, he issued an order to the military to stop the offensive to the Kachin, but the fighting continues. So as I was talking to him and he started saying, please, please don't call me minister. You can be, you can be informal. So I don't know what to say. I said, uncle, you know. <laughs> so it was, yeah, I used English word uncle, right? So it was, it was okay. That, so he, he accepted, and so I felt, I felt more relaxed towards the end of the conversation with the former general. So anyway, um, I went away from that meeting with the message, with the understanding that, okay, current government, President Deng Xing, they would like to hear public opinion on the current peace process, but they don't have clear mechanism, clear process, how they would listen to the public voice. So as a woman, and I also really emphasize that women are also affected by this and women must be included at the peace table and also coding 1325, you know. So, so as a civil society member, we are still working to have an inclusive peace process so that key stakeholders, including civil society, women will be on board at the yeah. peace process. Thank you. I will take on that. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, I don't know if all of you know that right now there is a peace process going on between the co Colombian government and the FARC, EP. The FARC is the longest guerrilla group that we have had in Colombia. So they are right now, this week, sitting in La Habana, trying to come to terms and to, to try to develop key very critical agenda, in fact, for all the country. And uh, I am part of a movement that is called Women for Peace. This is a collective of a coalition of women's organizations who are fighting or building peace, in fact, that are trying to do a sensitization movement and advocacy besides the civil society to try to protect that process because there are lots of deterrents in Colombia. There are lots of issues who are being negotiated. There are lots of right-wing groups. There are lots of people who want to keep 
work ongoing because we are selling art, because we have uh, um, illicit culture, because of many things. And so we women, in fact, we really want to make sure that these people, these armed actors, the government and the FARC, we continue sitting in La Habana until ACEs fire are rich. One of the, the, the grievances or the problems that we have, okay, we are accompanying that process, trying to mobilize, but one of the major limitations is that we women, we are not present on that table, table right? I was just mentioning before that we have an array of, uh, of um, legal framework, including Security Council uh, Resolution 1325, that is uh, involving women in peacemaking, peace uh, negotiation, and peace building. And uh, actually, women are not represented there. So we are trying to make sure that we women, in fact, that there will be at least one woman from the senior government and also from the guerrilla fighters that will be in the plenipotentiary teams, and also that in the supportive team, there will be women. Right now, there are two women who are advising the government, but they are not visible and they are not really at all the issues from civil society. Just one month ago, I have the possibility, I was uh, um, in the National Conference of the Green Party in Cartagena de Indias, where there were 450 delegate, delegates from all Colombia, and I was really advocating for that. I was advocating, besides the Green Party as a new, a new political force, to accompany and to protect this, this peace process, and also to make sure that they are going to advocate besides the government to ensure that we women from civil society will be, will be there sitting at the table, because right now there is political will. We have an amazing president that uh, has sur positively surprised us. We were thinking that he was going to be the papal of the people of uh, Alvaro Uribe, but in fact, he has approved amazing uh, laws. He has uh, uh, admitted, in fact, that there is an internal conflict, and it's for that, in fact, that now these actors are sitting at the, on the table. So we are doing really all our effort to, to make sure, in fact, that we will be there. And in that regard, uh, we are mobilizing, in fact, all women in Colombia. We know that in March will be a very critical moment, because right now we are discussing all the, the rural development, right? And uh, the distribution of the immensity of land. Right now we have uh, six million hectares. That would be like maybe 10 million acres, right? That has been taken away from peasants. And in the new law, in fact, that they have to implement, they have to give back these lands to those victims, including many of them are women, and we need to ensure, in fact, that that law will be implemented. And if there are not these women indigenous people, if there are not these women peasants who are coming from the different and remote places of the geography of Colombia, if there are not the African women there, in fact, negotiating in that table, that would be really very difficult to ensure, in fact, that all our needs as women and children and for all the civil society will be taken into consideration. So we would really like to ensure this is a very expedited process that started in October and it will end in maybe in November. That will be before the elections, right? We have elections next year. And so there will be many, many critical issues as the reform of the security sector institution, what we are going to have 
to do with all this insurgency and the women who were combatants, what we are going to do uh, with the land and what are we going to do to integrate this insurgency into political parties if they want to. So, so, so it's really very uh, many, many issues that are on the table and we as Women for Peace and as civil society, we really want to influence. So it's a great opportunity for us and thank you very much for having us here. Sure, sure. So to, to, to advocate for that, in fact, because otherwise, you know, it will happen like the 14 peace process that have already been conducted in Colombia. None of them have women the negotiation table, only one that was before the adoption of 1325. Uh, consider your advocacy to have been delivered. Yes, <laughs> good for you. Now, I'm going to open this up. We have four, uh, uh, Mike, thank you. Yes, you will get there if you're not there, where you just lose, the, you lose the, the names first and the nouns come next. So we have four microphones, uh, feel free to to line up and we'll go around. Minister, would you rejoin us here? Thank you. Yes, and be sure and identify yourself. Please, go. Yes, please, go ahead. Hi, um, my name is Lynn Kwok, and I'm a fellow at the Ash Center here. Um, I have a question for the lady from uh, Myanmar. I'm afraid I don't have a name on me. Um, I was wondering whether the Shalom Foundation, where you work, actually looks into the conflict in the Rakhine state as well. Um, and um, if so, what your thoughts on the position of the Rohingya Muslims there are? Um, we, are we are not directly involved in Rakhine, but we do have Interfaith Youth Cooperative Action Project that gradually we will be extend, expanding our project there, because right now the conflict is so intense and this kind of long-term peace building, trust building, relationship building, we will, we will gradually getting in. So we already have a few networks in the youth network in Rakhine. So, so we don't have present work in Rakhine yet. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Yes. So my name is Anne-Marie Codor, and I uh, had the privilege to work with Rajal Tali on an amazing uh, project of interviewing 20 uh, Syrian activist women. Um, and I learned a lot um, uh, during those interviews. I work with the International Center on Nonviolent Conflict, a think tank in Washington, D.C., on strategic nonviolence and how women uh, are some of the most imaginative, uh, innovative actors of nonviolence. Uh, always throughout history, but uh, there's something that is really very important uh, when you have acute conflict, like it's the case of course in Syria right now, is the, the ability of women to bring together people who are completely divided along lines of religion, uh, politics, uh, ethnic uh, backgrounds. And this has happened in Liberia. We remember from the case of Liberia how they were able to work together, Muslim and Christian women, and this completely changed uh, the dynamic uh, inside of Liberia. Uh, I would like Raja to, to say a few things about how women in Syria can uh, maybe be the only one who can uh, sew again the fabric of the society that is completely divided at this point. Thank you. <clears throat> so first of all, I want to thank Anne-Marie Kudur for like her patience with me because it was like the first one to bring to my attention the power of woman. Like I said in my 
first in the beginning that women are power, and I actually, Anne-Marie is the one who taught me this when we start working together. So, like, now, still, like, women are not working together. I, I want to say in Syria, pro-revolution pro and pro-regime. So still, women from both sides are not working together. And I cannot see, like, in the first, uh, in the next, like, couple of months that this will happen. But, sorry, but at some point, I think women are the one who will bring peace. So I've heard actually in Libya there was like a very good ex an example that like the mothers of murders from both sides are the one who are bringing people together. In Syria we'll have problem or maybe we are having problem between Sunni and Alawi and I think the women are the one who will be like let's say building the bridge together we are not there yet, but I think we are preparing for that. Like, I, I can give you an example. Like, in the last workshop, we were doing a, a workshop, and there was Alawi woman with us in the group, and there was, like, a whole group from Homs. It was, like, women and men, but it brings a lot to the, like, discussion and to the, let's say, intimacy of the group, especially at the end, like, having, like, Alawi among us and since she was a woman I think she added a lot to the like environment and yeah people needs tender and love and woman can give that yeah and some of us saw I bet a lot of us did Diane Sawyer did two different segments uh, right be a few weeks before the women were sworn in in the Senate in the um, in the U.S., and then I think maybe the day of, and she had these 20 women, uh, Republican and Democrat, and they were talking about what would happen if they were in charge of the budget crisis. <laughs> and, I mean, seriously, they, they were saying, you know, Susan Collins was saying to Kirsten Gillibrand, Susan Collins of Maine, Republican, to Kirsten Gillibrand of New York, a Democrat, if we'd been in charge, we would have had this worked out. You know, like, I would have, it would have been painful for me and painful for you, but we would have done it. And they kept giving one example after that. And, you know, you'd think, well, that's about women in politics in the U.S. But I don't know if we had, because we have, like, we just inched up to 18% now, like, after all this time. Well, what if it were 36%? Would we have the same policies? about how much we're spending on defense. I mean, what we see from the International Parliamentary Union that studies parliaments all over the world is that the higher the percentage of women you have in Congress, the less money goes into arms. And the, le and the more it goes into health and education. And guess what? Environment. Sophie, to your point, I mean, I, I didn't realize that that getting more women in, I mean, now I can make it make sense in my head, but it's happening in this country, but oh, so much more slowly than other places in the world. Well, yes, sorry, yes, and then, and then okay. we'll take your question. Okay. okay. Uh, let's take the question. Okay, we'll take your then. question. Yeah, yes. go ahead. Hi, um, my name is Lin Mia. I'm a freshman at the college. And I know that traditionally, and the, at the very least historically, across many countries, 
men have dominated both the private and public spheres of uh, life. And uh, this may not hold true in your countries, but I want to know um, in each of your respective cultures, how have, how have the traditional roles of um, women impacted, impeded, or aided the ri their rise in politics? Mm -hmm. Okay, I will answer her. She's asking about how the, because I couldn't hear exactly, she's asking about how the role of women is viewed socially is that it, it can you can you yeah. say it more clearly can you yeah. identify? Um, I was just curious as to how the traditional roles of women in each of your respective cultures impacted their rise okay. in politics so I, okay. I think it's it's more about the tradition the like tradition. culture people okay. saying oh well in our culture okay. we can't do blah blah okay. blah 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 I will, I will answer for Libya, for instance, and I think when I answer for Libya, it goes for some of the region around me, and then maybe you can hear some others. But in Libya, we have had, for instance, I'll just give you an example. Uh, women started fighting for their political rights since 1954, and they got the right to vote and participate in politics in 1963, that was before the coup of Gaddafi. Women had joined the right to education and we have a high number of educated women and uh, women are keen on education and actually the latest uh, studies they were done, we have 70% of the students in the universities are women. The same thing goes for almost 90% of those who are continuing graduate studies are women. And did I say it was women, right? 70% women. Yes, I was sitting with one of the professors and he was telling me, Wafa, this is amazing. 90% of the, of the students doing graduate studies are women. I'm really worried about our men and youth in the future. I think you're gonna be ruling the country completely. I am serious and he was really concerned. The reasons, the, the, the reason for this is not so, I mean, it's not really funny because this has been one of the sad issues with us. The oppression, the oppression was exercised in the educational institutes and it forced young people out of the education and I think it was destruct, destruction done by Gaddafi on purpose. He wanted to push people in ignorance because we all know that education is the vehicle for empowerment and the light to people. And then once you enlighten people with education, they will be asking for the rights. So he made sure to uh, keep people in ignorance as much as possible, especially the youth, which he feared. Uh, women, on the other hand, uh, had the right to education socially and legally. And we were working, we were, in, I mean, we always worked, we enjoyed our rights. So really saying that in these countries, like in North Africa, whether it's Libya, Tunis, Egypt, Algeria, Morocco, and the same goes, I mean, if my friends here, but we have joined, uh, enjoyed our uh, social rights with no, with no particular, except in some rural areas, of course, you will find uh, stricter traditions uh, about the role of women. But one thing, women have worked, and this is uh, uh, the case, and maybe it's global, in traditional jobs, and they have stayed away from participating in decision-making all the past 42 years. 
women did not have any experience in politics because of the bad reputation of anybody that comes near Gaddafi. So we really can say that we had no experience in politics and furthermore, no experience in civil society. Yet by miracle, and that's what I was saying, by miracle we were, we, we were, uh, we contributed and participated and took the reins, I say, we took the reins of the interior frontier during the revolution. Thank you. Yeah, you can go. Are, are there, is there another question? Yes. I was blamed to be parliamentarians and talk more. <laughs> Hi, uh, I'm Tsiona. I'm studying here at the Kennedy School mid-career and I'm from Israel and I deal with equality issues in the government. Um, for the past six months I've had numerous conversations here at the Kennedy School about resolving the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and in my heart and mind I have a very strong feeling that this has to come from the women of Israel and Palestine and I was and I'm really looking to you after hearing this impressive panel about such enormous change that you've made in your countries if you believe that across the borders where men have ruled this oppression for so much time if you believe that women from outside the political realm can form a movement that might push forward that peace agenda Georgia, will you speak yeah. to that from the liberian um, the women of Liberia um, came from all sectors. You had Muslims, Christians, professional women, market women, religious women, and just to answer the first person question, that transition at the time did not play a role because women in Liberia always been involved in decision making to some level, but not at the highest. But what you have seen, the women decided in Liberia that they are the mothers. They are the daughters, they are the wives. So the decision lies in the hands of the women. You know, we women, we have so much power, but we don't know we have it. And what the women of Liberia did was to exercise that power, that authority over the men and say, look, you are our husbands, you are our sons. And we say, this will have to stop. We're not gonna cook for you. We're not gonna wash your clothes. We're not gonna, I just refused to do anything for men. No, and wait a minute. You have, you have to say it. You uh -huh. said you were going to withhold sex. Oh. <laughs> and they yeah. did that too. And because of that, that is so true, the women decided this is it. This has to end. And so they left their homes, left their places of comfort, and they sat in the rain and the sun for days and said, we're not going to be home. So the man go fight war. He come home, the no food on the table. After a couple of days, he said, I want my wife back. <laughs> Where's my mother? I need my mother. But these mothers were out there in the rain and the sun and said, look, until you put your weapons down, we are not moving from this place. And after a while, the men got tired of seeing their mothers sitting there. They got tired of seeing their wives out there. They got tired of seeing their daughters out there. And they said, let's sit at the table. So I think um, the role that women play in decision making, especially when it comes to, to peace and security. Men, when you talk about security, he talks about bombshells and guns. I can tell you after the first election in 2005, after not having celebrated July 26, which is our Independence Day for so long, men that were trained by the US military to be bodyguards to our president. 
um, we decided that this 26th we would celebrate with fireworks. Everybody, there was so much awareness done about the fireworks. There was so much awareness done that on July 26th, after the parade, at the evening time, we'll light the fireworks. But all of these men guiding our president, all of the women around, by the time the first firework went up, it went with soft, and the second one, and the third one went pow, pow, pow. All of them were under the table. And all of the women were left standing. And like, what's wrong? The very men that's supposed to be protecting the president and all of us were running away from things that they had caused. I'm seeing this to say that women, when they take a decision and they decide to do something, they can do it. So what is happening in Israel and any other country, the women just need to know that if they come together, regardless of tradition, regardless of religion, and bring themselves together, there is power in numbers. The women can get together. Peace will be filled. See what's happening in Liberia. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, another speaker still here. Yeah. Good evening. I would like to raise a point. After you identify yourself. Uh, I prefer not to. All right. I, pre I, I would like to raise a point. Nowadays, victims of discrimination or sexual crime are still punished by the society and the institution because the society and the institution, whatever it is, United States, India, Syria, or Africa, doesn't want to see such crimes. So okay. discrimination happens much more often than we think. Thank you. So I understand you to be saying that, that the victims are often further it's called the second victimization. A second victimization because society doesn't see yeah. it. And, right. And Swani, that's what we're talking about, peace exactly. and security. Exactly. Okay. That women um, shouldn't be, they are victims when they get raped or abused. And then when they go to speak about it again, people look at them, you know. So they're three times a victim than they should exactly. be. But if you put women in the position of decision making where policy and, and programs can be, said, I can show you that all of these things would be addressed. Because from the man's standpoint, if you have a man at a police station and a woman is abused, I've seen it, and you take the case to the police, the police will say, oh yeah, maybe you ran out with the wrong person. You should have gone out with me. But if you had a woman at that police station who is caring and who knew what pain that that other woman is going through, that kind of statement would not be coming from another woman who's uh, in charge of security, who is supposed to be providing security and, and justice. So that's what we are saying that <laughs> peace and security is very important from the woman's standpoint. Um, I'm not saying that men don't care about peace and security, but not like the way women does. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because we're never talking about 100% of the women or 100% of the men. I mean, who could have been a greater model for us than Nelson Mandela? Yeah who said, if I can forgive, what right do you have not to forgive after all of my years of imprisonment? And we certainly know about very bellicose women who are tough, who are sharp-elbowed, and who don't have that kind of sen sensitivity. And so I, I don't want us to whitewash this. On the other hand, we know that, that the norms are different, that, uh, that women 
especially when women are in a context with other women, that they allow themselves to, to really experience themselves as nurturers and, and they pull out those skills of being particularly good listeners and being able to empathize. And that gets translated into public policy. It, it goes into the public sphere. It comes out of the private sphere. And that is our hope. Uh, listen, it doesn't just happen in Liberia. Women in the United States who are raped, they go to report it, and then they're raped by the police there. That's a story we hear in one culture after another. Thank you for raising it. Can I just tell you that, uh, can I just tell you this is the reason that 1325 is so important and the uh, resolution to act is so important for us. It's for those reasons. We no longer want women as victims, we want them as actors. Yeah. And that's why we want to work together on this. Yeah, thank thank you. you. We're gonna do one more question, and then would you bring this all to a close? I, I know I didn't give you advance warning, but <laughs> I, I wrote her a note here. It says, would like you to be final speaker, standing at very end. That's, so. why, that's why I stayed quiet. That's right. <laughs> yes. I'm Sadaf. I'm from Pakistan, and I'm a mid-career from 2011, so it's wonderful being back. I miss these forum events immensely. Uh, my question is that we've heard such inspiring stories, and I thought that there's an opportunity for us to uh, learn. You know, when you're starting something new, and you're really committed to making a difference and making an impact in your community because you believe in it. At the same time, uh, there are moments when you uh, feel certain fears. You can feel that there are certain things holding you back. It could be uh, fear of uh, failing. Mm -hmm. It could be uh, you know, fear of disappointing your people because you don't really meet the expectations or just not doing it really well. I mean, there are, these are some real, real issues that you feel. So I wonder if you have had such moments, particularly when you were starting, you know, some of the work that you shared with us, and how did you uh, deal with those moments, and how did you anchor yourself? Is that something you could integrate into your final words? OK, well, stand up there and don't be fearful. <laughs> then I should hold my Yeah, I think you have to just mic. hold that. Right. Thank you. OK. I'll stay somewhere that I can see everybody, but not still. OK, I'll move over. I'll Thank move you. Over. Um, well, I have experienced uh, the feelings that you have mentioned, the fears, the hopeless, um, and that, no, I can't do it, or what if I can't do it? Uh, and that was when I felt that it's very difficult to face these challenges, um, which worse it to, to face it, but you don't have the necessary, um, let's say, support or um, facilities or something that you need really, because you can't just, we have an expression in our language, Afghani, Dari, which says that don't take your boots out if you don't know the depths of the water. So, like, if you don't know that how much is the depth of the water, why should you take your boots out? Or you cannot go or enter into the hole of water without boots. I mean, you would never do that. So that is the point, that if you don't have the necessary requirements or equipments, you are not well, well prepared, you won't face it. But then 
what changes these feelings is that um, you have responsibilities um, and um, there are challenges, but you can target those challenges. And this is what the moments or the biggest or the best moment of it that you take the risk and you go for it, but well prepared. And then you will be sure that it takes time, but you will fix it. So the hope that takes you back, in my case, was that, okay, I'm tired, I'm ris risking to my life, but then, uh, and I deserve um, to enjoy my personal life, but then what about the next generation who are after me? What about my children which will come back? Um, so I would say that uh, I don't want them to experience what I have experienced. So that is the hope that's driven you and, and push you towards. And this is life. Life is full of challenges. If it was not full of challenges, it wouldn't be named life, I would say. Um, let me get back. Uh, what I've heard from the uh, excellent ladies and their stories is that um, the challenges are all over the world. And world is no more safer for nobody, nor in the United States, nor in Afghanistan, Libya, or anywhere else. And this war of power, I would say, not religion, because you see that there are different countries with different religious, all of them are having wars, so this is not a religious war, but a war of power is everywhere and could be everywhere in the future. It won't be the last war that we've experienced. It might come in every one of us doors. So, and the only thing is that why women should be included? Why not? We are all living the same life. We are living in this world. We are all the citizens of this world. And we cannot just sit there and watch that, oh, there is war going on and men go fights. No, we all have responsibilities um, to, to combat that and to um, solve the problems. If you have a children at home and your children is falling down and um, it's the mother sitting there or the father is there, any one of you will rush to save your child. You won't wait for the father to, or for the mother to come from the kitchen and then uh, hold the baby. So anybody who is there should do its responsibility, should, should, should have it. So it's, I'm sorry for making noise. So this is what I believe, to wrap it up very short, is that war will not end um, if, every one of us don't take a step forward toward peace. Peace is not something that will knock our door. Never, ever, if you will wait, if we will wait. So we have to make sure that um, we, we take one step forward to it, but then well prepared. So what we see that this peace should be inclusive if it means to be just peace, if it means to be long-lasting peace. We don't want a political agreement to be signed between Taliban and Afghan government and name it peace. No, for us, for the women, peace is more than stopping the violence and, and war. It's much more than that. And we want that peace to long last forever, for, for even for our children uh, in, in, the, in our societies. So it shouldn't be only inclusive in terms of gender, men and women, but also minorities also political groups. In Afghanistan, this is not the case. We don't have everybody included in the peace process. So we should put all the, these joint efforts together to make sure that we have the enough support, enough resources, 
um, and well prepared for the journey named peace. So that is why we, the women who are excluded, don't want to be seated and watching the war going on. And most of the time, unfortunately, it's a war driven by men. Um, so that is my conclusion, I would say. Yeah. There is no better reason for women to be included in the peace process um, if they feel that they can do something, they can bring changes within their societies. I will tell you only that there was a lady, a girl, at the school in Kandahar. You know the story, the acid attack on her face. You know what she said? She said that if this happened to me 10 more times, I'll keep going to school. I won't stop it. This is the to today's women of Afghanistan. This is how we are for it. No matter that even if it costs our life, we are ready to take the risk, but at least to make sure that the future is our children's future. So in terms of Afghanistan, again, uh, your troops are leading. Thank you for the sacrifice that your children did in Afghanistan um, and all the support that you gave to Afghanistan. Now the troops are leaving. Afghanistan will be st stay there. Life will be going on. The whole matter is that this life will be worse or better. So please stay with us and don't only watch us, but also push us to go ahead with life. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for coming.